And immediately, thousands are converted. And then over the next several years of time, thousands and thousands, and as the gospel goes out, more and more come into the church. And as Paul goes at proclaiming the gospel, where does he go into every city when he first enters? Synagogue, which is what? It's basically the church for the Jews. That's, that's where they go. Temple is the place of sacrifice. Synagogue is the place of study. It, 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 as a matter of fact, if, we go, if you go back and study the way Jews in history, long before the church was around, what going to synagogue looked like, what it, what it meant, it's a lot of what we look like today. We're still doing much of the same thing because we're not trying to reinvent anything. We're trying to follow something. We're going to learn that especially here in Romans 11. So in Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 11, Paul is now saying, here's what happened and what is happening and what will happen to the Jews. Because it's an important question, actually a series of questions, as Paul talks about God's choice and how God chooses one and not another in Romans 9 and then into Romans 10, talking about how salvation is coming to all that believe in the name of Christ, but that they must go and they must preach. And then these questions, these important questions in chapter 11, especially chapter 11 and verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Which is a really logical question to ask when it seems like now it's all about the Gentiles, because Paul would go into a city, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd begin to say, okay, you have the Old Testament, this is what God promised, let me point you to Isaiah, let me point you to these you know, different scriptures, these different prophecies, and let me show you that they were all fulfilled in Christ. And some would come out of the synagogues, and they would believe in Christ, become Christians. But many would not, and eventually they would rebel against Paul coming in and talking about these things, and they would shut him out, and there was continually, city by city, the rejection of Jesus, even though some would first come. So has God rejected his people? Are now the Jews done for? Verse 1 says, he says, by no means, and then he begins to explain, I'm, I'm a Jew, right? Paul showed that he didn't think that obviously the Jews were finished off because he went to the synagogues. We know those kinds of things. But then he also talks about how God always keeps a remnant for himself. So we, we, we read the beginning of chapter 11 that way. Now in verse 11, he says this. So I asked, did they stumble, the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, did God cause them to stumble, to trip over Jesus in order that they might just fall into the mud and die? Or, in order to just completely cut them off. The, the, the kind of fall he means here is, is an ultimate fall. In other, what, what else would it mean? Stumbling has that same kind of meaning to it, right? Stumbling is like the beginning of falling. So he's saying, does it, does it follow all the way through so that they finally hit the bottom? By no means. Once again, Paul, when, when it seems like the Jewish people are done for, the questions continue to come, Paul always wants to make sure he responds with his truth, with God's truth, by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Stop, hold on. Through their trespass, through the sins of the Jews, what's the sin of the Jews that he's talking about here? The rejection of Jesus, right? That is the turning point of all history, 
and specifically the turning point where the Jews have been given the oracles of God, Paul says in Romans. They have Abraham and the patriarchs, right, all the, the, the fathers. The, the Jews have all of this, all of God's word, and yet they're not accepting of Jesus. So Paul says, through the trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And I was, I was reading uh, one particular commentary on this, and it had a very helpful illustration, and, and I'll, just, I'll just try to give you sort of a picture <laughs> with my hands. So just imagine this big pool, like, you know, a backyard pool, like an above-ground pool. Think of something like that. It's got the straight sides on the side, and it just holds a certain amount. And the whole thing is all of those who will believe in Christ all of those who will ultimately be saved and have been saved in the past, right? So that's kind of the whole thing. But in the middle, there's a smaller compartment, which you don't see in, in the backyard pool. It's the same kind of, you know, basic height as the rest of it and everything. It's just, it's just like a big bucket in the middle. And that is the salvation of, from God coming to the Jews. So it's as if God always has had this plan, and he has. It's, scriptures say that over and over again. This has always been God's plan. The Old Testament says that. This is God's plan. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. And so this is all who will be saved, but salvation comes down first to and through the Jews. And so as God's election, foreknowledge, justification, all of that comes to the Jews and the promises come through the Jews and the patriarchs that the Savior would come. Now all of that flows to the Jews, but they reject Jesus. And so it's as if a lid gets put on the bucket. And as God's salvation pours down, it hits the lid, it begins to pour out into the world. It's exactly what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it? As, as it kind of, it's coming toward the Jews, but then the Jews reject it, so it just floods out into the rest of the world. And right now, that's the time that we're essentially living in, where the Jews had everything that they needed to lead them to Messiah, but they've rejected Messiah. And so now that salvation flows out into the world, and, and, and it goes to, as we would say, the Gentiles, but we mean just everybody else in the world now can and, and does believe in the gospel. That God is calling to himself all people and that is going to bring some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation into his kingdom. So that's essentially where we are. So is it that they stumble or that they might fall? So the lid's put on and it's put on tight. Right? You know the difference? I remember as a kid, my mom, I was just telling Molly this story for the first time a few weeks back. I don't remember why, but I remember... Um, being a kid, and I, I went, I was in first grade, and it's the first time in your life when you go full day school, at least back then, that was all, you know, the first time when you went full day, is so that's the first time we had lunch at school, and it's the first day of school, and I've never been gone from my mom this long in the day, right? So it's my first day of school, it's halfway through the day, I feel like crying because the whole world's been turned upside down and I'm here with this strange lady who's trying to teach me math instead of my mom who hugs me, right? If you didn't feel that when you were first grade, I don't know what's wrong with you because it just was, it was, it was painful. And I just remember that, that sort of empty feeling of, of just, I, I can't wait for this day to get through. Just, I just want everything to be okay and I just get home and I'll be with mom and everything will be fine. So we go to the lunchroom, which is the, the gym, 
and all the tables and, you know, they have the benches built into it, you know, talking about the, they're all there. And so I, we have line, and of course I had to bring my lunch because I'm a picky eater. If you don't know I'm a picky eater yet, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you have to be here for about 20 minutes to figure out that your pastor's a picky eater. Or at least used to be a, a very picky eater. Okay, so here we go. So I'm going in the lunchroom, and I remember mom wanted to do something to make me feel at home. So the first thing I have is a PB&J with no crust on it probably, right? Something like that. But I don't really remember what else I had, some Cheetos or something. But I remember I had a thermos. She went to the store and spent money on a thermos. It was only like this big. It was probably meant for soup. But of course, mom wouldn't give me that because she loved me. And so (laughs) there's this thermos, and it's got a screw-off lid, and it's insulated. And she, the night before, had just made a little bit of jello and put it in there and left it in the fridge. And then she put on the lid in the morning. And so I got to have still cold jello, and I got to feel like I'm still, you know, it's just a little bit of love for mom, something special. Who gets jello at school? I don't know, it's now packed with some crud, you know, now, if you don't have a fridge and all that. So I just remember getting there, and so I'm working on this lid. I'm working, I'm working on this lid, and I'm, I'm just trying so hard to get this lid off, and I can't get the lid off. And so I've, in my fear, I kind of find the lunch lady, <laughs> you know, I think it was one of the teachers who was kind of monitoring the lunchroom and all of us heathen. And so she came over and she tried to open it. She couldn't open it. And so she had to go find like a janitor. You know, the guy who literally carried a whole bucket of sawdust on his back for whenever kids puked in school, right? <laughs> it's like he has a backpack of sawdust that he would carry around. Ugh. All right. So, so they got him. I think his name was Bob. And he had this giant keychain on the side that hung down then on a stretchy, right? And he came over to open it up, and he's working on this lid, and eventually he cracks the whole top off the thermos. So he basically pulls the insulated part of the thermos out with the lid still glued on tight, and it's broken in half. And and my heart is just completely broken, because not only do I not get what mom gave to me, it's almost like I feel like I'm guilty of something. You know what I mean? Like like I, I didn't... I didn't, I didn't take what mom gave, and, and so they were like, sorry, and they took it, and they threw it in the trash, and I'm sitting there just like, whoa, and uh, I didn't cry. Like two days later, I think I cried, but I didn't cry that day, and I was just, it, it was this moment. I, I, it, just even saying it reminds me of Paul, how he speaks about the Jews. You remember those, those passages here in 9 through 11, as he just says, I just, I just long I, I desire, I wish that were cut off for these people. So it's not as if God takes this bucket in the middle with the Jews and seals on that lid tight. So the only way to even try to get it off is to break it. There's no way to get any more of God's grace. There's no way to get God's salvation back in that thermos. It's not like that. Paul says... First and foremost, their trespass, their sin, their rejection is for this purpose. That salvation comes to the Gentiles. They sin so that the lid gets put on, put on and salvation goes out. Now, uh, ultimately, what could have happened, and it's always, it's always risky in biblical studies to try to talk about what could have happened. 
You know, could, could God, you know, create a rock too big enough that he can't lift it? You know, well, well done, philosopher. How many angels could dance on the head of a pin, you know, or something like that? I mean, we can start getting, and then you can start getting to all these theological issues and, and how all of this mystery works out, and we just can't and don't know all of it. We, we can't say all the details. We can only say what God has given us, and insofar as he's given us this information, we have things that we can explain, and we have things that we can proclaim, but we cannot fully explain because it, it is mysterious. There's something that we cannot fully understand. So I, I don't want to get into too much dangerous ground here, but I do want to say this. It, it's as if what God intended is that the Jews all along would continue to believe and he would pour in and then eventually it would, it would overflow and the nations all are hearing of this Jesus through the Jews. As a matter of fact, it's not as if God intended that. That's what he, in, in part, intends. It's what he tells the Jews they're for. At the same time, we know throughout all of salvation history, throughout all of Scripture, that while God says that's the, the goal, how he wants to use the Jews, the Jews continue to fail, 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 fail. And all a part of God's plan is the fact that they will fail. He knows they will fail. He doesn't create not knowing whether we're going to sin or not. He creates knowing we're going to sin. And yet God is still not the author of sin. Uh, beautiful, wonderful, mysterious things that God has done. And, and these things are true at the same time. So, as we, as we look at the Jews, we have to first say that they stumble, not fall completely, but they stumble so that their trespass, their sin, will mean that Gentiles receive salvation. The lid comes on so that the gospel will overflow away from the Jews and toward the Gentiles. It's what Paul says. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It is what has happened. Comma, it's not a period. I stopped you there, but now there's a comma. So as to make Israel jealous. And I know y'all are a bunch of cheaters. So you've already read that ahead of me as I said stop, you know. But as, as we get there, just look at what happens. The lid comes on, so the gospel flows out, and the Gentiles now are starting to come in in droves. And yet, even that is there in order to make the Jews jealous. Now, I'm going to be careful here a little bit, but ladies are very good at doing things to make other ladies or guys or whatever jealous, right? In some way, they're doing things They've, you, you have things that guys are just like stupid and they're like, uh, 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 and just start going, right? Because we're, we're dumb and robotic and have these things that are easily manipulated. And, and so I'm not saying, and he's not saying the kind of jealousy that's a sinful kind of jealousy. We're not talking about, you know, oh, you know, kind of wag your finger at him like, ha ha, you know, now you're all jealous. The Jews are going, let me into heaven, and they can't get in. Um, Tim Allen, I remember Tim Allen before he had his TV show, he had the joke about the Pillsbury Doughboy like in the oven, let me out, you know, because he's kind of stuck in there. Um, you don't want to make your character something you stick into a flamethrower, right? I, I don't know why they do that, but whatever. It's cute. Um, Paul says, 
Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It, it is the kind of jealousy that comes righteously from God, right? If we are his people, pay attention now, if we are his people, then God has a kind of jealousy for us. We talk, and the scriptures talk often about God's jealousy for his own name and his own fame, his own glory. He is jealous that another false god would not be shown as mighty and he would seem small. And so God does things to continue to show himself mighty because he is righteous and that is not a sinful, selfish thing to do. That is a good thing for all people because he's the great creator of all things, and for him to be as the righteous one shown mighty is to bless his people and all people, if you get my drift. The, the best thing that could happen for us is that a good God would continue to be mighty and we would all glorify him. And so to say it's so selfish of God to want glory is ridiculous. This is why our kids are running our families in this culture. And, and I'm here to say, with the, the amount of involvement, especially my wife has in the school system, to watch at how kids run over their families. And And so, when you have a world that doesn't want God as their father. We have families that don't want their parents as their parents. And therefore we have this continued kind of rebellion in our families. And just one of the things that you can, you, you want to see sin in the world. You, you, first thing you do is look at children. What happens when you begin to give them their way? It just continues. Um, it just, it just continues. And, uh, and you know, you can try to blame the kid or talk about, Oh, those bad kids. When I see bad kids, you know, sometimes you see bad parents, and I know that that's difficult. I know that's hard. And I also know this. I do not have perfect kids. Anybody who's been around my kids knows my kids are far... Oh, Caroline's raising her hand. Thank you. Um, yes, she's like, yes, your children. When I think of sinners... <laughs> um, I didn't, I didn't just come away from that event and say how awful. I came away from that event thinking how devastating that would be for me as a father to have my kids act that way. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I say this not just to parents who are, in this illustration, the God figure, right, in the story, with the kids under them. I say this to kids. Now, if you're here, you're a child of somebody <laughs> at, at some point, right? All over the board. We have all been born from somebody. This is not something that's uncommon in the world. And so I say this to kids uh, of, of all ages as well as to the children in this room. When you disobey your parents, especially your parents who are preaching the gospel to you, when you disobey your parents, this is who you are. This is what you show. That God works around you. 
that we can be cut off. Don't think that you're, you're born in a Christian family and your parents talk about salvation and you, know, you feel like you've done something or you've maybe been baptized or you've been in a church or whatever else it is. You think that somehow by being in that family, you have strength. And let me just tell you, some of the worst kids in the world are pastor's kids. I woke up this morning and I just had one of those moments where I thought, what if three years, five years, ten years down the road, my kids... I remember stories, um, John Piper, you know, great guys, written all these books and blessed so many people around the world and all these sermons and all these conferences, just amazing ministry. And I remember the stories, I, I think we heard it at a conference the first time that I, I heard about this, but the story of one of his kids who he, he called his prodigal because he had, he's completely just gone. So Paul he's talking about this kind of a thing, but now he's talking about it in terms of all of history. Did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Through their trespass, salvation comes to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So as. Think of it this way. Think think of the, the prodigal son story. You don't just have one son. You've got to get that. The prodigal son's story is not just the prodigal son. If you think that's what the story is about, you've missed the story. Read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. Um, very helpful on this. But it, you have to be careful because in the story, the story throughout, there's another son. And the son is Israel. The son is the one that's been with the father the whole time. He says, my son, you've, you've always been with me. You've, you've got all of my blessings, just like Israel. And yet the son is jealous because the father has done what? Received the prodigal back. You've, you've killed the fattened calf for the one who's run away. Well, why, should, why shouldn't we receive him back? He's repented. He's coming back. He's sorry. Let's bring him in. Let's have, a, let's have a party. My son, you've always been with me. How should I not receive this one back? It's not just a story of God receiving one back, but how the Jews will respond with jealousy. Hopefully the kind of jealousy that will not just make them hate the Gentiles and persecute Christians, but the kind that will lead them to repent. Romans 11. Salvation comes to Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 12. This is how it always goes, right? The first 25 minutes I get through in one verse. Here we go. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, the lid goes on, the salvation goes out, right? If it means that, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, notice what Paul does. He, 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 this is all about the Jews. He's making sure he has, so much has been about the Jews and the Gentiles together, and then how the Gentiles especially have come and, and, and are making up this church. But then he says, how awesome would it be? As this is my paraphrase. And, and how awesome is it going to be when not only the whole world gets the salvation and is blessed, but how much more will their full inclusion mean? That the gospel then has gone out that would come back to the Jews. 
It's a very interesting thing he says. And then he begins to explain it all out, which is why we'll go through this a little more quickly than we did at the beginning. Now, verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Okay, so he stops, talks to Gentiles, and he says, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, is Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Yes, okay? It's very clear in Scripture, Paul's the apostle of Gentiles. It's, it's, it's sort of his point. That's when Jesus comes and saves him. He says, you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be my voice. You're going to be the one who's going to go and speak to the Gentiles. So yes, that's who he is. Inasmuch as I am that, and he is that, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. I just think that's... In other words, Paul's not gloating in order to make them get mad, although it will make some of them mad. There's the kind of thing you do that always makes them mad. You know what I mean? Um, my kids were playing Battleship this morning. For the kids who were playing Battleship right now, they're going, uh-oh, what's Dad going to say? Um, as my kids were playing Battleship this morning, which is a wonderfully violent yet not violent game, right? Because you're killing everybody's ships, but it's just a little plastic thing, so it's just no big deal. And um, so, the, so they're playing this game, and as the game is over, and they're upstairs, they're getting ready to come here this morning, and then uh, they start arguing, and their, the boys start arguing about the game. And there's three boys in there arguing about Battleship. And one's upset because I won, and the other one's upset, no, you didn't win, you put a peg in the wrong place, and you told me to put a peg in the wrong place. And it's this whole fight over who wins battleship, right? Not who gets to eat today and who starves. This is Cinderella Man, right? I mean, this is, this is battleship that's played before church because they're not allowed to get electronics on Sunday morning. And so I had to start talking to them, and then I had to call one of them out of the room, and I had to start having these just over battleship because we're so quickly made jealous because we want to win. We want to be right. We want to be accepted. We want the world to say how smart we are or whatever else it is that makes us jealous. There's the kind of jealousy in which we simply do things to try to proclaim our victory. And there's the kind of jealousy in which we do things because we want to bring victory to someone else. And so I talked to one of my kids about the other, keeping names out. I talked to one kid about the other, and I said, if you simply said, you know, well, I thought that I won, but I'll make you the honorary champion of the day, the other one would be like, ha ah, yay, this is great, thank you. And the other one would be like, hey, look at me, I blessed my brother. And everybody wins, but guess who won? Nobody. Because the jealousy spurred them on to trying to be the victor and to say that they were right rather than lead them to the ultimate blessing of more. Paul is saying that the blessing comes out when he leads people to a right kind of jealousy. You can shake the dust off your feet in order to kick it in somebody's face or in order to simply show them God just walked out. Not, not you, God, right? But that is a symbol when somebody leaves a group of people and goes to somebody else that now they've gone, they've moved on. I'm not the important one here. Somebody else is. Make them jealous so that they desire it. It's the kind of desire that, that Peter talks about when he says when, 
when somebody asks you about the hope that you have in 1 Peter 3, and so you're to be what? Prepared with an, an answer, right? Prepared with a, with a response. Why do you have that hope? So he wants to spark the Jews to that kind of jealousy that they will then desire what the Gentiles have and they have not received. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, as Paul said before, not all who are Israel are really Israel. Just because you were born in Israel doesn't mean you're Israel. It's those who are born of the Spirit, those whose hearts have been made new. So they're truly, even though they are of Israel, are dead and they're like uh, Ezekiel 37. I've preached to you a couple of times over the years. Uh, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? There's the bones just laying there. No, nothing on them. They've been bleached white by the sun in the desert. And all of a sudden, God says to Ezekiel, go in to speak. And then the clackety-clack of the bones come together. And then the hip bone's connected to the leg bone. And the leg bone's connected to the knee bone. And the knee bone's connected to the something bone. And there's a toe bone. And there's a bunch of bones. Okay? So you got the whole thing. And they all come together. And then sinews and ligaments and all this stuff. And flesh covers them. And then he speaks to the wind. And the wind comes in and breathes new life into these reanimated bodies. And it's as if he's saying... Ezekiel 37, this is what it's going to look like here when the Jews believe if they respond correctly in the right kind of jealousy. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. The, 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 the dough and the, the root or the, the foundation, if that is holy, and specifically here, I think he means the, the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If, if the, the origins of this thing is holy, not because they're holy, but because God's holiness made the promise through them, then what comes from it will be holy. If the root is holy, the branches will be holy, right? So, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted among the others, so now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the other branches. So he's saying, he's saying this. You've got the root. You've got what has come to Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of those who are children of them, who are children of the spirit, not children of the flesh, who are children of faith, not children merely of the given promise, but of the received promise, Right? And so you have this, this root, this foundation that is built up, but then the branches that are come out, some of them are not bearing fruit, which is a, a bunch of Israel. And so they're cut off, and then a branch that is not bearing fruit, which seems kind of silly, because we wouldn't say in a, if you had an olive tree, well, let's cut off the branch that's not bearing fruit and put on a branch that's not bearing fruit. But what happens is, is God says, if this branch is not bearing fruit, I'm going to cut it off and take another branch, and I'm going to cause it to bear fruit. So he puts this new branch on there, so it's going to come and bear fruit. There's, there's fruit. It's sort of the picture of the fruit starting to come on this dead branch. And the live branch is really dead, and the dead branch is really alive, so I'm just going to swap it out. That's kind of the picture that's going on here. So the, 
If some of the branches are broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, wild, kind of like out there, just kind of by itself, and it sort of gets put in there, it's grafted among the others. If you now share in that root, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Why? The branches that have been cut off are the Jews, right, Israel. The branch that has been now attached is grafted in are the Gentiles. Why should the grafted in branch not look at the branch that died and say, Shame on you. How stupid are you? Why not? Because what could your future be? If that once was attached to what was holy, has been cut off, what could your future be? Why is your future any more secure than theirs? You see? So don't be arrogant. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. But were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. I am now attached, but fear. You you have some kind of belief now? I can show you people who don't continue in that belief. I can show you lots of them. I can show you pastors, famous ones, that have not continued in their belief but have turned to unbelief. And, and so why should we be arrogant somehow and say, hey, look at us, you know, God's come to us. He's not gone to them. He's come to us. Because the same could happen to us. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, this is verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Do do you get it? If they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. The lid comes on, the grace flows out to the Gentiles, but just because they're there doesn't mean that they cannot still receive that grace. It's as, it's as if something more is going to happen. So look at the way Paul says it, and I'm, I, I'm just letting you know now, you're not going to get all the answers this week, and I'm going to try to give more of them next week, but that's still not going to be all the answers. It's still not as simple as as I think some of us want to make this, but just look at the way he finishes here. Let's start in verse 23 again. And even even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so what some people will do with this is say, there is a future for Israel. There is a reason. There's a reason that many inside the church and out in America, including if you watched the recent debate, and I only saw some pieces of it, but you, you get such amazingly strong statements from Republicans in these debates about uh, Israel. A lot of those are based, whether they know it or not, are based upon the understanding that there is still a future for the physical nation, the actual people, the Jews, the people of Israel. That there will still be this time where they will, 
there'll be an inpouring of Jews who will be saved. A part of the difficulty is, and I remember, I remember these conversations, not just with um, seminary students uh, when I was in the sem- seminary, I almost said cemetery, um, not just with, with any students, but in particular with a, uh, a guy and his wife, um, Noel and Hannah, who, yes, were Jews who had become Christians and now were attending the same seminary. And so we, I remember being in the backyard of Bill Housley's house, uh, having a discussion about end times and what's going to happen to the Jews and how all of that works out. And I, I think everybody who has their end times stories all figured out need to go back and look at how well all the people that had the Old Testament had Jesus figured out. You know, what happened to most people who had the Old Testament when Jesus came? Rejection, right? And so I just be careful because the minute you start making the grasshoppers into helicopters, you start putting something in place that once it falls, it's, it's a part of your faith. So you've got to be careful how you think about the end times and, and how you try to translate that into what the world looks like today and what's happening in the newspaper. Just don't watch Rexella. If anybody in this room can hear me, please stop watching Jack Van Impey and Rexella or Jack Van Imp or whatever his name is. You know what I'm talking about? The blonde, uh, they're like, I don't know, 150 years old now? I'm not sure how old they are. She's like, they're acting like it's a news show and she's like, oh, well, for more on this story, let's go to my husband, Jack. And then Jack's sitting there and he, his hands are a-flying and the Israels a-talking and there's a whole of the end times a-coming and there's stealth helicopters all over the place and Bin Laden's dead and if you go back to Daniel chapter 10 and, and it's just, you know, here we go. And then Rexella goes, this is exciting times. I'm like, you've been doing this for 70 years. You know? There's a point where you stop saying, here's the next one and you start going, there's always the next one. How, how long since Jesus and to us have there been wars and rumors of wars? Can anybody tell me? The whole time, there have been wars and rumors of wars. Some new war starts and everybody goes, set your watches, click, 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 click. Right? And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. That's all I'm saying. Start out. Now, this is so difficult because... Some will want to read this one way, and we've got to go back and read all of Romans and remember that when Paul talks about Israel, he, he begins to change the story and say, not all of Israel is Israel, and therefore when he starts talking about Israel, we have to go, okay, who is he talking about? And then we start seeing evidence. He says stuff like um, he wants to make Israel jealous, and he talks about their full inclusion. What would it, what would it mean if... Is he, is he talking about, we are Israel. We're the true Israel. The church is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel, right? So it's all those who are in Jesus. But then he seems to talk about the physical nation of Israel. It, it, it seems like if you t- try to take it all in, in that way, you're not going to get the, the physical the part seem, something seems wrong. Why graft in one and not the other if they're not real? Are, are they really grafted in? Because it's, it's all that have been by faith anyway. So you're not really changing the story, but it's kind of, it, it's, it, there, there are difficulties and questions that come to this. And next week's when we're going to see some, uh, some really amazing things and, and uh, a, a phenomenal passage. It's going to be really interesting next week. 
But let me just kind of sort of wrap things up this way without trying to get ahead of myself and get ahead of Paul. The point of this passage is not to tell you what is the future of the physical nation of Israel. We're going to talk about that next week. But the point where we stop today at least, the main point of where he's going is, is God hardens the Jews so the Gentiles will come in. God can harden the Gentiles so the Jews can come in. All who believe, he will receive in, right? He, he, he kind of goes that direction right there at the end when he says, For if you were cut off by nature as a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, then how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted back in? So we've got this kind of, you can go back and forth. If, if what was granted to you as a Gentile to come in, it can also, in verse 23, he says, we'll, um, if they do not continue with their unbelief, will be grafted in. What changes their unbelief to belief? Who in the world can change from unbelief to belief right now? Everybody. Right? Am I, am I wrong? Everybody who is an unbeliever, if God has chosen them, if God uses the gospel that we preach to them, then God can and when he chooses to will change them and then they will become a part of his church and, and ultimately forevermore his kingdom right this is how god works and so it, it's as if he's saying there's going to be something amazing that god's going to do and he's going to take the hardest of people and he's going to soften just a bunch of their hearts all i don't think it means every single one of them or anything like that but he seems to be painting that picture but whether or not he actually means the Jews as Israel, as, as the nation we say is Israel today, or people who have continued to stay in the bloodline of being a Jew, you hear what I'm saying? Whether or not Paul's saying 2,000 years later, the people who are still Jews then, at some point, there's going to be this influx of a huge amount. At this point in the passage, I don't think that we can say, and I'm not even sure that through next week we're going to be able to say with absolute certainty because I think that there is difficulty when you talk about Israel and who is Israel. Because all of believers are Israel. It is those who believe who are Israel. So I don't want to say too much, but I just want to say this. There is nobody beyond. There's nobody beyond God saving. Nobody. The minute we start saying those of us who believe are better than those who unbelieve, we not only forget who we were and how God changed us from the unbeliever to the believer, but we forget that God can continue to do that. And I'm just telling you now, not, not just as a member of this church, but as a member of many churches in the past and, and have gone, I've spoken at many other churches, talked to many other Christians, and there is an arrogance that comes in Christianity to those who are outside, I, I say this every Christmas, I say it every Christmas because I remember before ever coming to this church, we were driving from Kentucky up here to come and preach and to see if I was going to be the pastor here and if you guys were going to bring me in as the pastor. And I remember driving uh, in, in rural Indiana and there being uh, one of those signs that says, does anybody remember? The wise still seek him. Right? Wise men in the Bible, and they seek after Jesus, right? They're, they're going to find the baby. 
And so the idea is the wise still seek him. What does that mean? If you don't seek him, who are you? <laughs> Stupid, dumb, right? <laughs> so I just, I strongly just encourage you. And right now, especially as politics has been ramping up, um, not only, you know, because of these, these different races happening, uh, my, my brother's running for state office as a representative. And I've got all this politics stuff and then all of this, religious talk starts getting filtered in and filtered out and, and all and it just becomes this big swarm and i encourage you to to stay above that the highest form of christianity is not that which translates into a fallen political system the highest form of christianity is the one that says the world is not or, or say it this way this is the way some have put it and it's very helpful and of course i've gone over time um but we're not singing a song at the end so this is just how i'll close um, I, I, I've heard people say the Republicans are not conservative enough for Jesus and the Democrats are not liberal enough for Jesus. In other words, the Republicans are not enough into all of the values of what it means to be a conservative and the Democrats are not all in enough of what the values, the best things of both sides. Nobody has got it right. Jesus loved the absolutely unlovable and I'm telling you, I'm telling you, except for a very select few, liberals don't love everybody. They love those who love their point of view. And as much as you want to say that we earn our own way and we need to have a certain view of taxation or whatever else it is, conservatives don't have a good enough view of culture, of what it means to work hard, of what it means. Jesus has a better view of what it means to be conservative and better view of what it means to be liberal and, and all of those things. That doesn't mean Jesus is somehow the balanced middle. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean Jesus is an independent. It means that independents are not independent compared to Jesus. And that all things are truly right when seen through Jesus. And so therefore our hope and the hope of the world is not that we find ourselves caught up into some system or some position or some person, but that we realize that all who are stuck in unbelief can believe. And that what we need to do is preach the gospel to all because God will save some. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? After just a few moments after praying, we're going to meet back in here and uh, have our meeting as... Um, as quickly as we can, because some of us are hungry, um, but as, uh, as long as it needs to be, and uh, so we hope that you'll stay and be a part of the meeting and the eating. Um, but now let's pray and thank God for his word. God, we are so thankful, not because you've given us all the answers, and, and to be honest, even as the preacher, I, I, I sought out some answers to this passage and to the coming passage to try to make full sense out of this without any confusion in my head, and it's, it's just not as clear as we want it to be. There are arguments to be made on different sides, and so just help us to be careful, God, to not take things too far and to realize the point of what we read today is that we not become arrogant and somehow think that we deserve something that some others don't have. 
And for us right now, I mean, we don't really think of it as, uh, as a church in terms of Jews and Gentiles, but we think of it as Christians versus not. And, and so we can put it into that context, but also realize that in salvation history that Paul is telling us something very important here. And so may we connect these truths with the truths that we get next week and, and, and all through Romans and try to understand this as best as we can and, and remember, God, that you are a merciful God and all of your mercy that is given to us is something that we do not deserve. And we ask you, God, to continue to be merciful to so many around us who have not yet believed, that they will not face what we all deserve in the judgment that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you.